Section Four of Tanks by Murray Leinster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section Four. The signal light at his telephone glowed. The general snatched it up, his hands quivering, but his voice was steady and deliberate as he spoke. Hello, Sergeant. Sergeant Coffee, is it? Uh, very well, Sergeant. Tell me what you found out. Your prisoner objects to his rations, eh? Very well. Go on. How did he gas our listening posts? He did, eh? He got turned around and you caught him wandering about? Oh, he was second wave. They weren't taking any chances on any of our listening posts reporting their tanks, eh? Say that again, Sergeant Coffee? The general's tone had changed indescribably. Your prisoner has no recognition signals for his own tanks? They told him he wouldn't see any of them until the battle was over? Thank you, Sergeant. One of our tanks will stop for you. This is the commanding general speaking. He rang off, his eyes blazing. Relaxation was gone. He was a dynamo snapping orders. Supply tanks, machine shop tanks, ground forces of the air service, concentrate here. His finger rested on a spot in the middle of the dead area. Reserve tanks take position behind them. Draw off every tank we've got, take them out of action, and mass them in front on a line with our former first line of outposts. Every airplane and helicopter take the air and engage in general combat with the enemy. Wherever the enemy may be found, and in whatever force, and our tanks move straight through here. Orders were snapping into telephone transmitters. The commands had been relayed before their import was fully realized. Then there was a gasp. General, cried the chief of staff, if the enemy is massed there, he'll destroy our forces in detail as they take position. He isn't massed there, said the general, his eyes blazing. The infantrymen who were gassing our listening posts were given no recognition signals for their tanks. Sergeant Coffee's prisoner has his gas mask broken and is in deadly fear. The enemy commander is foolish in many ways, perhaps, but not foolish enough to break down morale by refusing recognition signals to his own men who will need them. And look at the beautiful plan he's got. He sketched half a dozen lines with his fingers, moving them in lightning gestures as his orders took effect. His main force is here, behind those skirmishes that look like a feint. As fast as we reinforce our skirmishing line, he reinforces his, just enough to drive our tanks back slowly. It looks like a strong feint, but it's a trap. This dead space is empty. He thinks we are concentrating to face it. When he is sure of it, his helicopters will sweep across any minute now to see. He'll throw his whole force on our front line. It'll crumple up. His whole fighting force will smash through to take us, facing the dead space, in the rear. With twice our numbers, he'll drive us before him. But, General, you're ordering a concentration there. You're falling in with his plans. The General laughed. <laughs> I had lunch with the General in command over there once upon a time. He is an artist. He won't be content with a defeat like that. 
He'll want to make his battle a masterpiece, a work of art. There's just one touch he can add. He has to have reserves to protect his supply tanks and machine shops. They're fixed. The ideal touch, the perfect tactical fillip, will be here. Look, he expects to smash in our rear here. The heaviest blow will fall here. He will swing around our right wing, drive us out of the dead area into his own lines, and drive us on his reserves. Do you see it? He'll use every tank he's got in one beautiful final blow. We'll be outwitted, outnumbered, outflanked, and finally caught between his main body and his reserves, and pounded to bits. It is a perfect, a masterly bit of work. He watched the board, hawk-like. We'll concentrate, but our machine shops and supplies will concentrate with us. Before he has time to take us in the rear, we'll drive ahead in just the line he plans for us. <laughs> we won't wait to be driven into his reserves. We'll roll into them and over them. We smash his supplies, we destroy his shops, and then we can advance along his line of communication and destroy it, our own depots being blown up, give the orders when necessary, and leaving him stranded with motor-driven tanks, motorized artillery, and nothing to run his motors with. <laughs> He'll be marooned beyond help in the middle of our country and we will have him at our mercy when his tanks run out of fuel. As a matter of fact, I expect him to surrender in three days." The little blocks of green and yellow that had showed the position of the reserve and supply tanks changed abruptly to white and began to crawl across the maneuver board. Other little white sparks turned about. Every white spark upon the maneuver board suddenly took to itself a new direction. "'Disconnect cables,' said the general crisply. "'We move with our tanks in the lead.' The monotonous humming of the electric generator was drowned out in a thunderous uproar that was muffled as an airtight door was shut abruptly. Fifteen seconds later there was a violent lurch and the colossal tank was on the move in the midst of a crawling, thundering horde of metal monsters whose lumbering progress shook the earth. Sergeant Coffee, still blinking his amazement, absent-mindedly lighted the last of his share of the cigarettes looted from the prisoner. "'The big guy himself,' he said, still stunned. "'My God! The big guy himself!' A distant thunder began, a deep-toned rumbling that seemed to come from the rear. It came nearer and grew louder. A peculiar quivering seemed to set up in the earth. The noise was tanks moving through the fog, not one tank or two tanks or twenty tanks, but all the tanks in creation, rumbling and lurching at their topmost speed in serried array. Corporal Wallace heard and turned pale. The prisoner heard, and his knees caved in. "'Hell,' said Corporal Wallace despairingly, "'they can't see us, and they couldn't dodge us if they did.' The prisoner wailed and slumped to the floor. Coffee picked him up by the collar and jerked him out of the pillbox. "'Come on, Pete,' he ordered briefly. 
They ain't given us an infantryman's chance, but maybe we can do some dodging. Then the roar of engines, of metal treads crushing upon earth and clinking upon their joints, drowned out all possible other sounds. Before the three men beside the pillbox could have moved a muscle, monster shapes loomed up, rushing, rolling, lurching, squeaking. They thundered past, and the hot fumes of their exhausts enveloped the trio. Coffee growled and put himself in a position of defiance. His feet braced against the concrete of the pillbox dome. His expression was snarling and angry, but surreptitiously he crossed himself. He heard the fellows of the two tanks that had roared by him, thundering along in alignment to right and left. A twenty-yard space and a second row of the monsters came hurtling on, gun muzzles gaping, gas tubes elevated, spitting smoke from their exhaust that was even thicker than the fog. A third row, a fourth, a fifth. The universe was a monster uproar. One could not think in this volume of sound. It seemed that there was fighting overhead. Crackling noises came feebly through the reverberating uproar that was the army of the United States in full charge. Something came whirling down through the overhanging mists and exploded in a lurid flare that for a second or two cast the grotesque shadows of a row of tanks clearly before the trio of shaken infantrymen. Still the tanks came on and roared past. Twenty tanks, twenty-one, twenty-two, coffee lost count, dazed and almost stunned by the sheer noise. It rose from the earth and seemed to be echoed back from the topmost limit of the skies. It was a colossal din, an incredible uproar, a sustained thunder that beat at the eardrums like the reiterated concussions of a thousand guns that fired without ceasing. There was no intermission no cessation of the tumult. Row after row after row of the monsters roared by, beaked and armed, going greedily with hungry guns into battle. And then, for a space of seconds, no tanks passed. Through the pandemonium of their going, however, the sound of firing somehow seemed to creep. It was gunfire of incredible intensity, and it came from the direction in which the front-rank tanks were heading. Forty-eight, forty-nine, forty-ten, forty-eleven, muttered Coffee dazedly, his senses beaten down almost to unconsciousness by the ordeal of sound. God! The whole army went by! The roaring of the fighting tanks was less, but it was still a monstrous din. Through it, however, came now a series of concussions that were so close together that they were inseparable, and so violent that they were like slaps upon the chest. Then came other noises, louder only because nearer. These were different noises, too, from those the fighting tanks had made, lighter noises. The curious, misshapen service tanks began to rush by of all sizes and all shapes, fuel-carrier tanks, machine-shop tanks, huge ones these, commissary tanks. Something enormous and glistening stopped short. A door opened, a voice roared in order. The three men, beaten and whipped by noise, stared dumbly. "'Sergeant Coffee!' roared the voice. "'Bring your men, quick!' Coffee dragged himself back to a semblance of life. Corporal Wallace moved forward, sagging. 
The two of them loaded their prisoner into the door and tumbled in. They were instantly sent into a heap as the tank took up its progress again with a sudden sharp leap. "'Good man,' grinned a sooty-faced officer clinging to a handhold. "'The general sent special orders that you were to be picked up. Said you'd won the battle. It isn't finished yet, but when the general says that—'Battle?' uh, said Coffee dully. "'This ain't my battle. It's a parade of a lot of damn tanks.' There was a howl of joy from somewhere above. Discipline in the machine-shop tanks was strict enough, but vastly different in kind from the formality of the fighting machines. "'Contact!' roared the voice again. "'General Wireless is going again. Our fellows have rolled over their reserves and are smashing their machine-shops and supplies.' Yells reverberated deafeningly inside the steel walls, already filled with tumult from the running motors and rumbling treads. "'Smashed them up!' shrieked the voice above, insane with joy. "'Smashed them! Smashed them! Smashed them! We've wiped out their whole reserve and—' A series of detonations came through even the steel shell of the lurching tank, detonations so violent, so monstrous, that even through the springs and treads of the tank the earth concussion could be felt. There goes their ammunition. We set off all their dumps. There was sheer pandemonium inside the service tank, speeding behind the fighting force with only a thin skin of reserve tanks between it and a panic-stricken, mechanically pursuing enemy. "'Yell, you birds!' screamed the voice. "'The general says we've won the battle. Thanks to the fighting force, we're to go on and wipe out the enemy line of communications, letting him chase us till his gas gives out. Then we come back and pound him to bits. Our tanks have wiped him out." Coffee managed to find something to hold on to. He struggled to his feet. Corporal Wallace, recovering from the certainty of death and the torture of sound, was being very seasick from the tank's motion. The prisoner moved away from him on the steel floor. He looked gloomily up at Coffee. "'Listen to him," said Coffee bitterly. "'Tanks! Tanks! Tanks! Hell, if they'd given us infantry a chance! You said it," said the prisoner savagely. This is a hell of a way to fight a war. Corporal Wallace turned a greenish face to them. The infantry always gets the dirty end of the stick, he gasped. Now they, now they make an infantry ride in tanks. Hell. End of section four. End of Tanks by Murray Linster. This story read by Phil Chenevere in December of 2012, Baton Rouge, Louisiana.